biggest complaint with the Virgin flight and the media that went around it is telling the public that this is an area of guilt-free flying makes them think that the problem is solved when the problem is far from being solved. We're only on the cusp of understanding how we're going to decarbonize this sector, let alone actually taking the action to, to deliver it. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories and interviews across the world of transport. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades covering policy developments in transport. So what stories do we have today, Mark? Hello, Christian, and hello to our listeners. We have a wide selection of stories today. We're going to be looking at the first uh, transatlantic flight using sustainable aviation fuel and asking just how sustainable that journey really was. We'll then be exploring the government's announcement of its response to the Union Connectivity Review, which uh, examines how to link up more effectively the nations and the regions of the United Kingdom. Uh, that will lead us into a conversation about some of the challenges facing the rail industry in Great Britain as it seeks still to recover from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then finally, we'll be looking at the revelations around attempts to keep secret the use of defeat devices to conceal uh, the emissions from uh, internal combustion engine powered vehicles. Right. Okay. Well, uh, let's start off with uh, that uh, famous flight. Um, I was intrigued by that, you know, looking at was it really a genuinely sustainable uh, concept? And uh, the government gave it uh, a lot of publicity. Um, you know, Mark Harper was on the flight, lots of journalists and, and so on. So I decided to talk to Tim Johnson of the Aviation Environment Federation, which, which has been looking at this type of issue for many years. And here's my interview. So, uh, Tim, just to kick off, uh, tell me about this flight and the background to this flight. Yes. So Virgin Atlantic, working with, with Rolls-Royce, flew last week from uh, Heathrow to New York, uh, a transatlantic flight, which was billed as the first transatlantic flight to use 100% sustainable aviation fuel. And there was a, a lot of headlines around it. Um, government put out press releases. Rishi Sunak did a short um, video on Twitter yeah, and, Mark, Har Mark Harper, the transport secretary, uh, uh, even did a, a video on Twitter. They, they seem to love this sort of stuff. Indeed, and he was on board. Uh, and the government had put up some of the funding for this flight to, to, to take place. And some of the phrases that were used around that included, you know, the the beginnings of an era of guilt-free flying. Um, and we, we, we felt that really needed unpacking. So, so, so what was it? Did it fly 100% on sustainable aviation fuel? Yes, it did. But sustainable but wait aviation... Wait a minute. What, what, what is sustainable 
Well, uh, we're going to get to a, let, let, let's get to that in one minute. Okay. I'll come okay. straight back to it. But okay. but, but it did uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, we prefer to use the term alternative fuel because I think sustainability is something that we feel has to be assessed rather than just assumed. And putting a label on it called SAF um is 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 part of the problem we think it's part of the misleading picture that gets painted but but we'll come back to the sustainability arguments it at the moment airlines can use up to 50 percent sustainable aviation fuels blended with kerosene um and this flight needed special dispensation from the UK authorities, from the Canadian authorities and from the US authorities to actually make it without blending it with kerosene, simply to use 100% of these of, of, of sustainable aviation fuel. This is fantastic news, surely. This is absolutely great. You know, we, we're now finding sustainable aviation. Well, I, 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 I think the answer to that is no. Um, so there was a point to this, which was do aircraft um, continue to operate safely and efficiently when you put 100% of these fuels on board? And that's what, they, that's what they've proved. Is it an era of guilt-free flying? Is the flight sustainable? We would argue not. I think the thing that most people do not realise is there is no difference to the emissions that come out of the back of that plane from a flight flying on kerosene and a flight fl using sustainable aviation fuels. They both emit just as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere when burned on board. And that to us cannot be a sustainable aviation um, uh, industry. Uh, there okay, has to be more in it. You have to delve what, under. You said Mark Harper was aboard. Was it a normal scheduled flight with lots of people aboard? It was largely, um, um, I think, a lot of journalists were on board and a lot of government officials. So in in in, in that sense, it, it was not a, a, a normal flight, but it used a normal passenger plane and it flew, a, you know, a, a, a very between two very sort of um, uh, busy airports in, in, in New York. Okay, and, so, it didn't, so from it that didn't point just... of view, it would have been the same as a flight had it had normal passengers on board. It didn't carry. Uh, it just didn't carry hot air, which was, uh, <laughs> might right. have put out hot air. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of hot air about it. So, so what is what? So, so okay, you're skeptical about this. Uh, uh, so, yes, you made a point. Uh, the same amount of CO two comes out the rear end, uh, uh, but uh, surely this is um, a better way of flying. Well, it's not using fossil fuel, that has to be said. But the idea that this is going to be scaled up um, is is going to be very, very challenging. Um, what they used on board were basically used cooking oils. I think, I think most of the sustainable aviation fuel came from used cooking oils. Um, and in the short term, that is where... The aviation industry is is looking to get most of its supply for sustainable aviation fuels. So it's very much based on wastes. Um, there are lots of reasons why that won't scale, in, in our opinion. Well, so this not, comes not from fish, fish and chip shops. That's all. I mean, yeah, anywhere else yeah. apart from fish indeed. and chip shops? Well, this the, 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 this this was imported from the US, but um, 
um they largely come from from the catering industries that's correct that 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 that, that that's where they're sourced McDonald's. Um, Mac, McDonald's. <laughs> yeah i don't know the specifics but i i think that's very 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 likely source for, for some of these things uh but you get you get the gist so you know there are two challenges here or, or, or many challenges one is that the uk is already committed to eliminating eliminating waste um, that goes to landfill um in, in terms of its sort of biological content so this is a source that's not going to get bigger in the future. It's only going to get smaller. But aviation's demand will certainly get bigger. So, so, so that 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 that's certainly one problem with it. Um, other problems include the cost. I mean, typically at the moment, kerosene in in costs about two dollars eighty five per gallon. If you use sustainable aviation fuels, it's in the region of six to seven dollars wow. per gallon so it's two to three times more why more is that yeah the additional processing um the fact that at the moment production is very small scale so in terms of the volumes being produced against the the the, the cost of the capital investment and the infrastructure at the moment it it, it it it's that much more expensive than kerosene and maybe with time it will get cheaper but at the moment you know it, it is extremely um more expensive than kerosene and likely to remain so and so there's nothing new about sustainable aviation fuel we've known that aircraft can fly using a blend of of these fuels for the last decade it's just that nobody's required the industry to actually um take up these fuels and as a result investors don't see a market for it they haven't invested in the infrastructure um, and it's only now, as the industry is, has sort of finding itself um, the subject of net zero commitments, and it's thinking, how do we get from where we are today to, to net zero in 2050? They don't particularly want to change the aircraft that they've invested in. I mean, most aircraft are in the air for 20, 20 to 25 years in, in sort of commercial service as passenger jets, quite often they have a much longer life um, as freighters after that. Yeah, you know, airlines still have, sorry, manufacturers still have orders from airlines um, running to thousands and thousands of aircraft that won't be delivered for the next 10 years that are all built around using kerosene or kerosene equivalents in the form of sustainable aviation fuel but how much how much of this stuff is a, is around tim i mean i just that's what i don't understand I mean, surely surely you know i mean how, how many fish you know fish fryers did it take to kind of fill up this one plate i mean there's just so much fish and chips mcdonald's whatever surely it's a, it's a, i mean I, I don't understand how anybody can be seriously looking at this in, in terms of supply or am i am i being too pessimistic no no i think i think you're spot on i mean globally at the moment last year 0.1% of aviation fuel came from these alternative sources in the uk the figure was slightly higher i think in the last 12 months uh the fuel uplifted at uk airports i think it was about 2.6% 2.6%. Um, okay, right. So, so that's but significant, it's, but yeah. It's it's significant, but bear in mind that's a percentage of the fuel used. And last year was still a rebound from COVID. So we're still the volumes are still less 
the volumes are flying are still less than they were in 2019 prior to COVID. And as we sort of each year get more and more of a rebound back to pre-pandemic levels, it's likely that percentage is, is going to fall back because it's obviously a, a production's not really increasing, um, but the amount of flying is. So, you know, 2.6 is, 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 is a better position this year. Will it be sustained next year? I think that's doubtful. The government's commitment is to have five sustainable aviation fuel production plants under construction by 2025. You know, but most of those aren't projected to start producing fuels until sort of 2027 or 2028. So, so, so there is a there is a niche industry here, but nothing like yeah. kind of uh, uh, doing whole flights, let alone kind of the whole industry. But so, um, are, is there any anything else that uh, you know any other apart from cooking oil? Is there anything else that can contribute to this? Yeah, well, it's a very broad term, and there are so many pathways uh, that fall under this this definition of of, of SAF. So we talked talked about used cooking oils. Um, in the US, there's lots of pressure to use crop derived fuels. Europe has already ruled those out because of the competition with you know agricultural Ooh. land that's required Ooh. for food production. In the US, they say they have the space for both. And therefore, there is more pressure in the US to have crop derived ones. So cr crops are one. There is a, a pathway that potentially the environment movement would would get behind and support. And that is to make a synthetic fuel. But to make a synthetic fuel, you firstly need direct air capture to capture the carbon. You need green hydrogen. And you need a lot of additional renewables, not only to power both of those processes to make green hydrogen and to do the direct air capture, but you also need to go through a very energy intensive process that will turn that into a synthetic hydrocarbon fuel. Can you explain think, green, green hydrogen? Many listeners might not understand green hydrogen. Yeah, well, green, 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 hydrogen, as, as, as you know, um, has all these different... Um, colours of the rainbow associated with it, depending on how it is made. Um, so it's possible to make hydrogen as a byproduct of fossil fuel com um, combustion. And typically they're sort of grey and blue shades of hydrogen. But making sort of green hydrogen is really taking a water source, separating out the atoms using lots of renewable energy. And so you're, it's not a byproduct of anything. You are creating hydrogen from, from water. So providing you have lots of water and you have lots of renewables, you have something that can potentially be a fuel that doesn't have a high right. associated greenhouse gas component with it. And so if you can get that green hydrogen and you can have engineered you know, direct air capture, you can put those two together and you can make a synthetic aviation fuel. But, you know, the costs of those are higher than the costs I mentioned previously around wastes. Um, we haven't at the moment got direct air capture at scale. We don't certainly don't have green hydrogen uh, at scale. And although this government has ambitions to increase UK hydrogen capacity, we don't make very much hydrogen. In fact, we make very little hydrogen in the UK at present. So these are these are all big 
industry challenges or industrial scale challenges that that really come under the heading of sort of industrial strategy rather than transport policy. You need to be doing all these things, but then you potentially would have a synthetic fuel you could use in the future. But so you're saying that it would cost even more than the six? They would, uh, they would cost even more. They would right. cost even more. Now, the EU has issued a mandate for the aviation sector. They say that by 2030, fuel suppliers must supply a minimum of 6% sustainable aviation fuel. And from 2030 onwards, they have a sub-target that a percentage of that will have to come from these so-called synthetic fuels. And so they've got a very grand ambition that by 2050, the EU is looking to have 70% of all aviation fuels coming from SAF, of which 35% of that must be from synthetics. So there are big, big, big targets here. The UK, I have to say, is more modest. Um, The UK has been promising a SAF mandate um, for several years now. We haven't seen it. It may be out uh, later this year. So we don't know where where the UK is going to pitch its target. But ministers have been saying, we want to go bolder than the EU. We want to have at least 10% SAF by 2030. So the EU6, the global vision that was a- agreed about two weeks ago, the global vision is 5% by 2030, the EU6%, six be- six the UK ambition is to have at least 10%. But, but where is all this going to come from, Tim? Oh, well, I mean, this this is the big concern. Right. That, that, as I was sort of alluding to, some pathways are more sustainable than others. And so things like use cooking oil, we think, I say, they're, they're, they're waste-based, they're in limited supply, they're not really additional um, in any way. And so they're at one end of the spectrum. You have the sort of synthetic fuels at, at, the, at the good end of the spectrum, but they're very much more expensive. And at the moment, we don't really have the, the industries that would be able to, to produce them at scale. And so we feel the more ambition that you have, unless you have very strict environmental criteria, the more ambition you have, the more likely it is that you're going to to drive investment into unsustainable pathways. And then we get into things like palm oil. Now, the industry will say, we're not going to touch anything with palm oil in. But ultimately, if you set an ambitious standard and all your other sort of pathways are, are limited in what they can contribute, you get all sorts of um, uh, different pressures on the system to, to to look for solutions. And I think George Monbiot put out a, a thread this week where he said an industry insider had told him that a large amount of palm oil potentially was being passed off as... Um, if you like, agricultural wastes. So it qualified for these fuels. But in essence, all we all all it was doing was diverting palm oil from from other sources in in in, in into aviation. And, and I think that that's an important point to make as well. This term waste, it sounds it sounds an efficient thing to do. These things are wastes. They're not technically wastes. Most of these things like use cooking oil and and, and other sort of um, uh, food wastes actually find their way currently not into landfill but into things like the pet food industry 
Now the pet food industry saying, well, fine, but if you take that away from us, we then have to source other sources of, of, and so there's a displacement effect and, you know, conventional ways of looking at this sort of, once you start to look at that sort of displacement effects, they're not typically captured, you know, and so you get these life cycle assessments that say, oh yes, we're 70% less emissions than, than if we'd burnt kerosene. But but the sort of chain chain effect isn't always taken into account, and 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 when you look at it holistically, you know the environmental benefits and are not always as high as 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 as, as the industry would claim. Okay, I mean that's that's all fab. So so just to to conclude, I suppose that the fundamental question about your work is: Can aviation ever become you know even reasonably sustainable, or is it? you know uh, is the only way you know to take planes out of the sky which yeah. uh, obviously you know we we need planes we don't necessarily need to go to stag parties in warsaw but we need them to do all sorts of other things i mean can it ever be sustainable it is right to you know there there is hope for a generation of zero emission aircraft in the future you know we already have some uk companies doing some great things with hydrogen fuel cells and electric aircraft, but they're small. You know, these are typically four to sort of eight, 10 seater aircraft. Piper comes- Do they provide the basis for thinking that by the sort of 20, late 2030s, 2040s, we could be using that technology in, in sort of um, commercial aircraft? Yes, most definitely. And, and I, and I, and I think, whilst they have their own sort of costs and challenges, that that is a realistic vision to have. The problem is, this is not just about 2050 and net zero. It's really important what we do now and through the 2030s, before these new technologies are available. Um, For the first time, the government has said that it will include, formally include, international aviation and shipping emissions in the sixth carbon budget under our climate change act so up until now they've been excluded we leave a we leave headroom for them we adjust the totals down uh, but we don't include them but from the sixth carbon budget which starts in 2033 we will be including our share of international aviation emissions in the uk's carbon budgets and therefore if we're not on track to meet the emission reductions that we anticipate it's going to put huge pressures on other sectors of the economy to, to, to make up the shortfall. And so the 2030s are a really important period. And because we don't have those zero emission aircraft contributing at scale in that time frame, you have a really stark choice. You either continue down the pathway of saying sustainable aviation fuels are the answer, and that is the industry line, or you have to face the reality that we have to ask ourselves the question, do we need to fly less? And that has to be part of the the problem. And I think our biggest complaint with the Virgin flight and the media that went around it is telling the public that this is an area of guilt-free flying makes them think that the problem is solved when the problem is far from being solved. We're only on the cusp of understanding how we're going to decarbonize this sector, let alone actually taking the action to, to deliver it. And if the public hears guilt-free flying, they think the answers are there. And it makes it really difficult to have a conversation about, should we be flying less in the future? 
Um, and I think that's the big the biggest danger is the message that that this flight has sent and the way it's, if you like, clouded the debate that really needs to happen. Uh, we need to think seriously about about flying, flying less in the future. Oh, well, that's a fantastic. You, <laughs> I was going to ask you a final question about that, but you actually gave the answer before I needed to ask the question. So that's a, a fantastic summary. So uh, uh, thank you ever so much, uh, Tim, for, for debunking the, the myth of the, uh, the virgin flight that is supposed to be leading the way to a new world where actually um, it's a lot more complicated, as you explained so well. So thank you very much. Uh, so, Mark, you've been uh, looking at uh, the Union Connectivity Report uh, on transport, which I think was originally stimulated by a plan to build a tunnel between uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, which, of course, uh, was one of Boris Johnson's pet projects, uh, which never happened. And then Lord Peter Hendy was then asked to look at this in a rather more considered uh, and serious way, and uh, came out with a report a couple of years ago. And, and now I understand the government has finally uh, published its response to this. I think you're being a little unkind, probably, Christian, which is uh, unlike you uh, in all matters of transport <laughs> policy. But I think what uh, you do have to go back to the uh, what now seems such a long time ago, the Boris Johnson era, uh, to find the origins of the Union Connectivity Review. Uh, and the idea really was... Um, in a situation where so many uh, transport powers had been devolved to the nations of the UK and to some extent the regions of England as well, was it appropriate to try to find a unifying strategy to um, improve connectivity across the entirety of the UK? And the, the tunnel that you mentioned uh, was a kind of manifestation of this idea that was definitely something that was uh, found very attractive by the former prime minister. But in fact, the, the Union Connectivity Review undertaken uh, by uh, who was then Sir Peter Hendy, now Lord Hendy, and which published its recommendations some two years ago, was a, a very thorough piece of work looking at all forms of uh, connectivity, road, rail, to some extent, even maritime and uh, aviation uh, to link up the, the the nations and regions of the UK rather better than they than they ha have been hitherto. Now, interestingly, it's taken the government a full two years to respond to those recommendations, but those have now been published, and there are a number of uh, highlights that uh, are in the recommendations. And they are broken yes, but down. Honestly, I was bit, I might have been a bit unkind about uh, Boris Johnson's intentions, although uh, I, I'm not sure I was. But the tunnel was killed off by this, wasn't it, Mark? Yes, yes, it, yes, it was, Christian. Yeah, it, it didn't. Uh, it didn't feature. It was a bit like uh, for those of us with uh, long memories, you'll recall that during the time of the work of the Airports Commission, looking at how and where to expand airport capacity especially for southeast england uh in a time you know long ago before the pandemic um boris johnson as mayor of london had a pet scheme for that as well which was to build 
a new airport in the Thames estuary. It actually closed Island, Heathrow, it became known as Boris Island. That's right. Um, so, you know, he, the, the, Boris Johnson is and, and was known for his, his sort of grand projet, you know, that, that became a sort of a, a trademark of his as well. But yes, so, so, so Sir Peter Hendy's, uh, now Lord Hendy's, Interim, uh, interim, and then final reports from the Union Connectivity Review kind of made it clear that digging a tunnel across the Irish Sea was not a realistic proposition, uh, probably in this century at least. Um, and so um, a number of other recommendations were, were formulated and uh, now the government has responded to those um, and it's broken it down on a, a sort of nation by nation basis and then a sort of across the UK basis. But some of the projects that they're keen to take forward are extremely interesting. Indeed, some of them featured in the Network North proposals, which we covered in an earlier edition of Calling All Stations at the time of the cancellation of HS2 in October. But so, for example, Christian, for Wales, um, there is a reiteration of the pledge to, to invest a, a billion pounds to fund the electrification of the North Wales main line, bringing parts of North Wales within an hour of Manchester. Will that be enough to electrify it, though? I mean, that, that was one of the Northern uh, uh, Network North kind of promises. It was well, slightly back in the envelope. Is that enough to do it? Well, I think, I think it's a fair criticism that an awful lot of the Network North projects and calculations were, were pretty much back of the envelope. But um, what we're now seeing is time after time, this, this pledge is being made by the UK government. So it looks like something to be taken seriously, even if Good. it might not be enough to complete the entirety of the project. But sometimes it's the little things that make all the difference. And what's also announced in parallel with the, the re-announcement of the billion pounds is 700,000 pounds to Transport for Wales to study options for upgrading Shotton and Chester stations and increasing the capacity on the North Wales main line. So those are really important precursor uh, uh, projects to be able to deliver full electrification. So I think that shows that there's some serious thought has been has been put into uh, these ideas, you know, getting beyond that back of an envelope uh, calculation. There's also a commitment to uh, expand the, uh, to, to deliver in full the Midlands Rail Hub. Now you ask, well, what's that got to do with Wales? But of course that shows the connectivity that exists across the UK because the rail network of the Midlands of England feeds into uh, and receives from the, the network of, of much of Central and, and South Wales. And there's a pledge to in, uh, increase the frequency of services between Cardiff and Birmingham, but also a further, um, uh, I think this is a re-announcement again of 2.7 million for Transport for Wales to develop options for upgrading the South Wales main line, including new stations between Cardiff and Seven Tunnel. And you said 2.7 million or two million. This is a this is millions. Uh, oh, this so, is millions. So, so these are just for feasibility studies. That's right. That's the kind of thing that's being uh, suggested yeah. here. Okay. Then uh, for Scotland, uh, and it shows that this is a, a, a multimodal package. 
So there's a commitment of funding to deliver targeted improvements to the A75 road between Gretna and Stranraer, starting with providing £8 million to the Scottish government to support the business case development. Again, we see the funding for that development work rather than actually, uh, as the Prime Minister often says, putting the shovels in the ground. I, I've, I've driven along that road. It's a pretty hairy road, actually. It's one of those road that you you main roads used to be in the old days with you know bits where there's kind of room for three cars and oh, uh, right. mostly just uh, single lane on each uh on each carriageway and uh obviously there's a lot of trucks on it because they're heading off uh, to, to northern Ireland stuff so uh even though i'm not a great fan of road improvements uh that's one that you know is probably quite good investment and the, the, again we hear uh, a, a, another project that constantly comes up the duelling of the A1 uh, in the northeast of England. So there's a commitment to funding the duelling between Morpeth and Ellingham. Uh, and then on rail, there is funding for network rail to study options for enhancements to improve capacity and journey times between England and Scotland. Now, of course, this follows on the controversy uh, related to the cancellation of HS2 and the fact that it's suggested that journey times between uh, London and Glasgow, for example, will actually be longer as a result of HS2 uh, services using the new line between um, London and Birmingham because they because won't the be able to tilt. tilt. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, then for Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, of course, is a, a, a transport uh, area that we featured in an early edition of uh, Calling All Stations, looking at the unique setup there for provision of public transport in particular. Uh, there's £3.3 million for TransLink to study the cost, feasibility and value for money of electrification of the railway from Belfast to the border. Um, there's another £700,000 for feasibility study on reopening the Antrim-Lisbon line and £800,000 for, for TransLink to deliver a feasibility study on reinstating the Porter down to Armagh line. And then there's so all some... Good, I mean, all, all good things, but it's all about mostly about feasibility studies rather than actually uh you know any rails on the ground or kind of uh, uh actual projects being seen the light of day yeah that's right and I, but i think in a way that reflects the, the practical considerations that apply here and often the the case that the the stakeholders involved in these things say please give us the money to do the feasibility studies Right. So, because they they recognise that you you just can't send the sort of the the diggers in and the cranes in and and without the doing that preparatory work, um, there's also um, across the UK uh, a pledge to reform domestic aviation policy by changing the public service obligation grants uh, to allow uh, this is effectively public support for flights. And at the moment, uh, as I understand it, those are only supported to and from London. So there's that's right. Yes, that they're going to be on a sort of uh, across the UK basis. So presumably allowing people, say, to fly from Belfast to Edinburgh or to Cardiff more easily uh, or more affordably than they can at present. And interestingly, although one a... would say that this hardly 
fits into a green agenda, does it? Given well, that... I, I think that's uh, you know that that is a consideration as well. But I suppose in in practice, the only serious way to uh, to connect Northern Ireland to the rest of the UK for business travel um, uh, is, is sort of time effective is through civil aviation. Um, and then the uh, there is an interestingly uh, institutional change, which is a commitment to work in partnership with the devolved administrations through a newly relaunched interministerial group for transport. So trying to get perhaps beyond some of the adversarial relationships which have existed in the past to more uh, collaborative ones. So, so those are some of the headlines anyway from the... Um, the government's response to the union connectivity review. I think it's largely being overshadowed in public discourse at the moment by other issues that are affecting government and parliament. But from a transport perspective, it is an interesting piece of work, which does seem to have resulted in some actual tangible investments being made, at least in business case development and preparatory work even as we say, if not yet, in terms of uh, shovels and diggers in the ground. Oh, well, that's a, a, a great uh, summary, Mark. And let's hope that actually most of those projects are picked up by um, a future government, which, of course, um, we expect to be a Labour one. Thank you. Christian, you've been looking at some of the numbers related to rail services in Great Britain, which have been published recently. Uh, yes, the uh, Office of Road and Rail has come out uh, with some figures. And, you know, whilst we see uh, this gradual recovery from uh, COVID uh, continuing, it's still not a great state of affairs when you look at it carefully. Because if you exclude uh, the Elizabeth line, which, of course, has produced a big boom for uh, rail use, at least in, uh, in and around London, you see that actually the actual number of people using the railways is still about 78% of uh, the pre-COVID high high that was uh, in uh, 2019. So uh, there's still you know a fifth of people not traveling. What's more, in terms of revenue, uh, that's even worse because uh, that fifth are often quite high paying commuters and they've and many people uh, are now using uh, the railways for leisure travel and they pay uh, less. So, so some of the commuters have actually been replaced. And anecdotal evidence suggests still that people are working from home. You know, a lot of people are working from home one or two days a week, although although there's also some encouragement for people to go in the office. So that might improve. But so this leaves a big hole in uh, the railway finances which has to be filled and the railway can't operate without uh money being allowed by the budget and the treasury is very reluctant to allow more money and so i understand that in the new year uh the transport minister mark harper is going to face you know a, a lot of difficult options so either he has to somehow uh, sanction some extra money. The, the gap seems to be about two and a half to three billion um, in terms between the, what the budget was hoped for and what the actual revenue has been. So uh, that gap has to be filled. Now, you could possibly cut back sufficiently to uh, make those savings. That's impossible. But there will be pressure 
on uh, the train operating companies to cut back uh, certain services, frequencies in particular. And, you know, when you cut back frequencies, you also probably lose some uh, extra passengers because, you know, people then revert to other forms of transport uh, because they, they don't want to wait half an hour on the station platform or whatever. So uh, there's just going to be some pretty difficult decisions coming out of the Department for Transport uh, early uh, in the new year. What's interesting, of course, is that the department is still trying to uh, re-let some of the franchises which have been uh, taken in-house, as it were, by uh, the Department for Transport. So uh, franchises like uh, Northern and uh, London and Northeastern and lately uh, TransPennine Express and so on. So there's several franchises that are actually operated, as it were, in-house by the Department for Transport. And there's a little bit of irony here because uh, Mark Harper has said, oh, we want to reprivatize those, we want to let them, you know, though LNER, for example, has been in the public sector effectively for nearly four years now. But uh, he says, well, we want to, uh, you know, get market disciplines back in there. But one of the problems he's facing is that both Northern and uh, LNER have issued their figures lately. And these are very promising uh, figures. They show that uh, passenger numbers have increased by more than the average uh, across uh, the network, in both those networks, that they've actually been putting uh, money back into the Treasury. They're effectively profitable. So that money goes back to government. And, uh, you know, it has been pointed out that if they were privatised, that money would go out of the industry into the pockets of, of shareholders. Um, and so the whole logic of uh, the privatisation process, uh, particularly at a time when there is so much strain on the railways and, and such big deficits to make up, you know, why uh, privatise sections of the railway that are actually doing well, both from a passenger point of view and economically uh, putting money back into the Treasury. So lots so, of so, uh, tough decisions for Mr. Harper. So is there any kind of analysis, Christian, of why there's a variation in the performance of the train operating companies? I mean, they're pretty much, at least in England, all still affected by ongoing industrial disputes, aren't they, with Drivers Union ASLEF, even though uh, there's yes, been a that... settlement with the RMT? That that doesn't help. Although, uh, again, with leisure travellers, they they can then choose. Well, we're not going to travel on a strike day. We'll we'll go shopping uh, in the big town on the other day. So so that kind of uh, is a bit more flexible. And students uh, who are a big users of railways can also be generally flexible. So the overall effect on the income isn't as much as one uh, would ex expect. But it's and it's undoubtedly true. LNER, for example, are doing well because uh, you know it is a long distance and largely a leisure railway. Um, you know, not many people kind of uh, commute along it, and not many people use it for business travel. So it's largely leisure railway, and leisure has been doing very well. Now that's something I haven't managed to really understand, uh, and I've asked a lot of people in the industry why why leisure has been doing so well. One of the explanations might be that uh, certainly uh, until recently, uh, fuel prices had gone up kind of really astronomically and, and made it kind of 
uh, reasonable for the railways to, uh, in terms of price, it was kind of quite a, a good deal. And it's it's also the the, the case that uh, the problem for the railways is that they don't make much profit out of these leisure travellers. I mean, they make a bit, but but they're not really putting money back into uh, into being able to, to 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 make profits out of them. They they really make their profits on business travel and and commuters. And it, the was like. those, um, it was those it was those nine to five commuters who, uh, yes. who who were regularly contributing enormous amounts of revenue, weren't they? And those are are, are not with us in even now uh, in the same numbers as they were before the pandemic. And of course, the even the uh, the business travellers are able, and I'm one of those on a frequent basis, are able to take advantage of the advance fares and the other discounts that are available by... Yeah, you're very ahead. canny about that, aren't you? you? You actually, and and you're not the only person I know who actually tailors their travel around uh around the fairs i mean i i, was, I met somebody who lives in oxford yesterday and he, he always now uses uh the Maryland service into london because uh they don't actually charge a, a peak rate for the return back back uh, uh in the evening whereas they do on great western so right, he can yeah. always get a 31 pound uh return rather than if he was traveling peak it would be 75 pounds and that so there's a lot of people like him and you who are being much more canny and i think that's a result also of the working from home phenomenon isn't it that if people do go into the office they'll go in after nine o'clock and they'll go in on days when there's better deals that's right i mean with as, as i've mentioned in the past lner has no peak time restrictions on a friday so you can go in very cheaply at eight o'clock in the morning on a Friday uh, and get a full day in London and, and travel back in what used to be the evening peak as well. So so these certainly um, do give you the opportunity to save money um, as well as uh, continue to make your journeys. So I think, Christian, what you're suggesting then is that is that there are some difficult decisions going to have to be made or or the, or the government is going to have to continue to support the railway through this transition while it continues to recover from the pandemic impacts. But at the Absolutely. same time... Watch this space. We'll, we'll be covering this in calling all stations. And of course, it is a run-up to a general election. So one suspects that, uh, you know, they, they, they will not kind of impose vast amounts of cuts. But but note, the... the um, uh, the the welfare is also uh, expected to go up, and they were expecting an announcement about that quite soon. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, I'm sure that most of you will remember the scandal around uh, Volkswagen um, and other manufacturers, as it uh, was later revealed, who disguised the amount of emissions uh, with some uh, dodgy devices, which were fitted during the tests they made and then taken off and uh these uh are called defeat devices and uh the department for transport was uh, reluctant to reveal information about these uh defeat devices because they claimed and they're always worried about this it was commercially sensitive uh information and uh, so therefore, people couldn't find out about what these uh, defeat uh, devices were. But then they were taken to court by uh, environmental group, uh, Client Earth, uh, 
who wanted uh, these revelations uh, to be made so that people could know about these uh, defeat devices. And the Department for Transport very pleasingly actually lost the case. Um, and therefore, the public will now be able to find out about uh, what these devices are and which cars have them and so on. So uh, a victory for common sense and also a victory against this ghastly, commercially sensitive uh, kind of moniker which prevents so much information that should be in the public domain from getting there. Calling All Stations, the transport podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at allstationspod. Thank you.